we don't have enough speculative fiction or science fiction that imagines a positive future, one that we might actually want instead of imagining just all the ways that it could go wrong. I think it's much harder to imagine, well, what is it that we do want? Welcome to The Art of Humanity. I'm your host, Jessica Ann. This is my podcast where you can listen for fresh perspectives with artists, leaders, authors, and your favorite entrepreneurs. You can explore creativity and consciousness, evolve your business with The Art of Humanity. Now, here's this week's episode. I'm so thrilled to bring you this episode with Pamela Pavlishok. I found her through one of the other guests on my podcast, David Ryan Pulger, who I interviewed on episode 21. Thank you, David, for the intro to today's guest. This global reset is a call to examine our shadows, and it's a way to shine our light on our personal power. This pandemic is a heart opener that allows us to deeply inhale and trust that we're right where we're meant to be. B with a capital B. For those who follow me on socials, my handle is Being is Human. It's a play on words, words on play. Three simple words to inspire your day. The lightness of being holds a frequency that's new. Not many gravitate here because it's slow and it's few. When you stop hiding in the hustle and thriving on to-dos, your intuition can guide you to be human. Yes, you. That's just a little poem I wrote. As much as we've integrated technology into our lives, it's so important to contemplate its deeper meaning and possibly the hidden agendas such as transhumanism and the singularity and AI, the AI standing for artificial intelligence. The AI of emotions caught my eye because it's something that's so casually introduced into our society, but it also has repercussions with how we evolve as humans, which is why I wanted to talk with Pamela. In this interview, we talk about how technology is giving us new emotions, and we don't even have words for them yet. The emotional relationship that we have with technology the uncanny valley aspect of technology. We also discuss whether the singularity is happening right now. If you know someone who depends on and enjoys their technology, but also has questions about the future of our humanity, this is the show to share with them. When you share this podcast with a friend, you're not only helping them, but also supporting my mission to enlighten humanity by continuing to bring the most brilliant minds to the mainstream. For show notes and resources, go to artofhumanity.io. Now, let's go to the show. Note that this episode was recorded before the current unrest. Welcome to The Art of Humanity, where we explore creativity and consciousness with artists, leaders, authors, and entrepreneurs. Today, I'm so thrilled to have with me Pamela Pavlishak. Pamela guides organizations toward emotionally intelligent futures as founder of Change Sciences. She's part ethnography, part psychology, part data science. Her approach translates future vision into tangible everyday possibilities. She specializes in emotionally intelligent design and emotion-sensing artificial intelligence. Her research has been featured on CBC's Spark, Salon, and Quartz. Her book, Emotionally Intelligent Design, focuses on how to design a future that has as much EQ as it does IQ. Pamela is a TEDx speaker and has spoken at South by Southwest. The Next Web, Web Summit, Google Creative Labs, among many others. She teaches at the Pratt Institute School of Information in New York City 
and has lectured at the Stanford D School, ASU's Center for Science and Imagination, University of Washington, and Parsons. Wow, what a bio. Pamela, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So Pamela, let's talk about our relationship with technology. This is something that's kind of on everyone's minds and on our fingertips at pretty much any given point in time. If you're listening to this podcast, you are probably holding an iPhone in your hand or at least have a computer nearby to download an app to listen to this. So technology is pretty emotional for many people. And at the start of one of your videos, I think it was for the next web, you shout out an app to the audience and then the audience shouts back an emotion. And I find this so fascinating because each type of platform that's out there today that is designed to connect us immediately incites an emotion. And, you know, and it's evolved over time. I mean, on Instagram, I remember just a few years ago, I associated Instagram with the likeness of a quiet museum. And, you know, it was just this blissful, serene, quiet experience. And now, these days, you know, probably with what's going on with throughout the world today, but um, I often feel like I need to reclaim my newsfeed and like insert please be quiet signs everywhere just because it feels so loud. <laughs> so there's this paradox going on right now in terms of technology, with social media, with the climate today. You know, we want to feel connected and like we are in these beautiful museums like an Instagram or in some beautiful invigorating place. But sometimes this relationship with technology is pretty complicated. So I'm curious, what did you find? I know in the video that I watched, the audience really seemed pretty lit up when you shared these different emotions and stuff. And what kind of is your research finding about how the emotions of these social networks reframe our experience of the world and change and challenge our emotions? Well, I think it's really interesting because we often, I mean, you know, we're going about our days, we kind of know that we're getting drawn into these spaces and we're maybe not thinking about how we're feeling in that moment or even what feeling we associate with things. So I, I got this idea a few years ago because as a researcher, I kept hearing it more and more often that people were having all these feelings after they logged off of Instagram, say, or going to a certain space online to have a feeling like outrage or enjoying something that they didn't feel like they were supposed to enjoy, like schadenfreude or the joy in somebody else's distress. <laughs> and so I decided, well, you know what, because I'm I'm speaking and consulting and doing so much work around the world, everywhere I go, I'm just going to bring together a group of people and into kind of a salon and discuss what emotion is dominant at this time and how it's changing and how it's morphing due to our relationship with technology. And what I found is, you know, there's not just one emotion associated with each platform, but this sort of complex emotional underpinning. And these platforms are kind of changing our emotions. So if I were to say, like in 2019, what were some dominant emotions on in the social spaces online, it would be anger and outrage, probably on Twitter. It would be mm -hmm. um, perhaps 
awe or shock on YouTube. Maybe some positive emotions too, like gratitude or, or pride. And certainly loneliness has become this emotion that, that's drawn to everybody's consciousness. I mean, even the World Economic Foundation has laid that out as a huge problem for our time is to cope with loneliness. Now that we're in this extraordinary time of a global pandemic, I feel like those emotions are changing to more panic, fear, anxiety, grief, um, maybe solidarity on the plus side, but everything's changing really quickly. And we're getting these new feelings. So in that talk that you mentioned, we have some new feelings, like that feeling we have when we see the three dots pop up in our text and we're sort of anticipating what's going to happen. And then, of course, when those dots just disappear and nothing happens, we all know <laughs> that that feeling. Or yeah. you know, And there's other new feelings as well. Like I think especially now we're talking about emotions with this new newfound interest. And so a lot of people are talking about anticipatory grief, which is very similar to what we might feel about climate change, where we're thinking about how we might grieve things that will be lost in the future, or nostalgia, where we're nostalgic for only two months ago, something that's relatively new. These aren't necessarily because of technology, but the spread of them and the naming of them and the way we're, we're shaping those feelings is related to technology. So all of that fascinates me. And I think it's really something that when we're in it, it's very easy to overlook and to think, oh, emotions are these, this eternal thing. It's always the same. And I think what I've learned in studying it is it's, it's not. It's actually always changing and shifting. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I love that you bring up these emotions that we don't necessarily know what to call them. I think you use the German phrase uh, schadenfreude. How do you say that? Schadenfreude, I think. Schadenfreude. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't love the term, but I love that there's this idea that it exists in other languages and, and not all languages. And the same thing, kind of like you mentioned, that's a German term. And it maybe explain a little bit what that means and then also explain about how we're bringing in this new wave of emotions that we don't even know what to call them or like we know what we're experiencing, but we don't actually can't put a label on them or say this is as simple as grief or this is as simple as anger. It's these new waves that are coming in. And and I think as you alluded to, it may be because of this these new technologies that are changing the fundamental wirings of our brains. So like let's start with a German word and then like let's talk about some of the other emotions that we don't really know what to call them. I find this so fascinating. Yeah. Well I think Everyone jokes that German is just so great for coming up with new words because you can put together a couple of words and create a new one. So schadenfreude or this pride that you might take in somebody else's downfall, I think, is very characteristic of certain social contexts online. But I think also this idea that 
emotions spread really quickly. In person, we mirror emotions. So if we're looking at each other face to face, we'll kind of copy each other a little bit and pick up on these signals of emotion. And we do that in a much more, I don't know, stunted way in some ways online and also an exaggerated way online Mm -hmm. and pick up on those emotions. And so I think because internet culture is a global culture, we pick up on words and emotions that maybe haven't been named in our own culture. I mean, if you look at the English language, we don't have a lot of positive emotion words. There's a lot of negative emotion words. And there's there's just a sense that if you can't name an emotion, you maybe aren't really appreciating it. And I know I've come to this a lot in, in discussions with people, like I was in Prague and chatting with people and they said, oh, there's this emotion called litost, which is this sudden shame on seeing a glimpse of yourself. And I thought, oh, wow, this is me when I'm looking at my Spotify suggestions for myself. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man, is that really who I am? Am I that person? <laughs> uh, yeah, now I want to know what kind of music you like. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, you know, I think this is something that is changing and shifting because of internet culture, because it's global. And because, you know, even though there's certainly discussion in the world of neuroscience and psychology about how there are some emotions that might be constant or universal or understood across cultures, there's also enormous variation and language and context and social norms and cultural memory is all a big part of our emotional experience. And so that seems like it's moving faster, it's accelerated, and it's amplified in a lot of our online spaces. <laughs> I love that. It's so interesting because uh, I recently found out that there's a German word for what happens when you eat when you're sad. And it literally, it's the German word for it is Kummerspeck. But the, but the English translation, it comes out to be grief bacon. <laughs> I love that. Well, there's another one that I heard recently related to panic buying called Hamsterkopf, which is hamster buying, coffin is buying. So like kind of hoarding, like you get this image of a hamster shoving <laughs> little nuts into its cheeks, you know, like hoarding up its food. And I thought that was very vivid and felt really like, oh yeah, that is a better word for it than what we have. <laughs> Totally. It's such a visual too. You know, you can just, you can picture a hamster, like, you know, buying things, like not literally, but you know, you can just picture like the visual of like a hamster in his little like box or whatever, and just needing to like consume and and go kind of crazy. So it's kind of nice to have that external like visualization of something, which it takes away. It's almost like the opposite of litos, as you said, the sudden shame of being a glimpse of of yourself. It's like the opposite of that so that we can almost see ourselves a little more clearly and not as harshly. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, you know, there are some emotions that are not specific to one culture, but have come out of internet culture. Like I think of cyberchondria, 
which is, you know, the impulse that we have to immediately Google a symptom and then oh, yeah. work mm-hmm. ourselves up into kind of a state saying, oh, uh, gosh, maybe I, I do have leprosy or some, you know, obscure mm-hmm. disease because I, I have all the right symptoms. And so I think that's something that is very relatable. It's something we've all experienced. And to put a name on it makes it a piece of... Uh, culture that we can share and also makes us a little more emotionally intelligent, right? Because that's the other thing that we're learning about emotions is that, yes, some emotional response is innate, but a lot of it we can learn as we go along and we can grow and we can become more aware of our emotions, of other people's emotions, and use that knowledge, hopefully wisely, to to kind of manage ourselves and have empathy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think empathy is the key word here when we're talking about the future of technology and, and how we use and incorporate it into our lives, especially as we continue to advance our technology. I mean, there's the uncanny valley aspect of it. I will never forget this moment. It's instilled in my psyche of when I went to CES a few years ago, I think it was 2015 when I was in Vegas, there was a Toshiba Android robot that was singing the song Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And I looked at it and it looked at me and there was this little glimmer in its eye as it looked at me as if it recognized me as like it was like a human. And there is this term, uncanny valley, which is a concept that was first introduced in the 70s by a professor at the Tokyo Institute of Technology. And he coined this term, uncanny valley, to describe his observation that as robots appear more human-like, they become more appealing, but only up to a certain point. Every time I hit publish on a new episode of my podcast, I'm filled with such immense gratitude for the ability to co-create at this time in history. Those on this shared path of co-creation are ushering in a new consciousness on this planet. It's a new state of being with a capital B versus the old paradigm of doing. Many of us humans need a manual on how to simply exist. Podcasting is one way to broadcast our light. It's a way to activate our human potential and bring in business. My team and I have created results for our clients like a six-figure deal with Spotify within one year of launch, getting ranked as an Apple new and notable, deals with iHeartRadio and Himalaya, Stitcher has even promoted our podcasts to climb the charts. We're creating success for podcast hosts from all over the world while working smarter, not harder. If you're looking to take the mystery out of podcasting and want to start or scale your podcast into a globally recognized media empire, go to go.artofhumanity.io masterclass to learn more about my profitable podcast masterclass. Again, that's go.artofhumanity.io masterclass. Now back to the interview. We say that technology is good and we need to have empathy for it, but only up to a certain point. So how do we know when we've reached that point? And if we're already there, is it too late? Yeah, it's such an interesting question because for me, you know, as somebody who researches technology and also designs technology, I really emphasize technology that augments 
humanity instead of automates it or replaces it. So for me, that's kind of the dividing line, but it's very hard to assess what that is sometimes. And of course, you know, part of being human is that we do imbue other objects with humanity just naturally. So if you see something that looks like it has a face, if there's a little bit of movement, if, you know, something has eyes, we immediately try to attribute some kind of personality to it. And so, I mean, you can go for a deep dive in like Reddit groups on Roombas and find that, you know, well, first of all, everyone names their Roomba Rosie. That's the most common name. And mm-hmm. second of all- Just like out of the Jetsons, right? <laughs> exactly right. And, you know, there's something about it because it's familiar, it's in your home, it's moving in a way that seems like it might have some humanity. So even though there's no personality designed into it, say like a Siri, for instance, it still has its signals to us that we should treat it in a certain way. So I think that's just so interesting that we have that kind of impulse to make everything seem human. So that makes it even harder to assess the uncanny valley. But I think the uncanny valley is really, if we think about it formally, it's really talking about like the kind of humanoid form that a bot might take. And to me, I don't know, that doesn't get at the full picture, right? Because I think, yes, robots that look too close to being a human are creepy. Um, (laughs) Inherently, we Mm -hmm. feel that kind of creepiness or this discomfort. But I think we'll also see in the next couple of years, bots that are, have reach this emotional uncanny valley that are too like us as people in their mannerisms, in the way they simulate emotion with us, in the way they converse with us or communicate, or even in the ways that they can pick up on some of our emotional signals and interpret those. And I don't know, I don't have the right answers on any of these issues, but I think that's another dimension of Uncanny Valley that we haven't even, we haven't even considered yet, that we haven't even gotten to, but we will. Totally. And it's really kind of crazy when we think about it, because in one hand, it's almost like this technology, like imbuing us into our humanity and vice versa. Like we want to imbue our humanity into technology, but you can also flip it the other way around and see, is technology wanting to imbue our humanity on its own technology? And how's that for a head explosion emoji? (laughs) You know, it's, you mentioned that by 2025, you know, machine readable emotion will already be embedded in our culture. So how much of that is humans wanting technology in our culture versus this almost like transhumanism taking over the world that not to go too out there and fringe, but at the same time, I feel like it's important to talk about this stuff. You know, transhumanism is really important to be aware of. And it's something that I didn't really necessarily know too much about just a few years ago when I was kind of obsessed with Elon Musk and the technology and all this stuff. And the more that I read into it, I was like, he's not as cool as I thought he was a few years ago, just because I don't really know exactly what he's doing or exactly what the big, greater agenda or plan is that's out there. So, you know, this transhumanism, it's an international cultural and intellectual movement with an eventual goal of fundamentally transforming the human condition by making available technologies that greatly enhance 
human intellectual, physical, and psychological capacities. So it's kind of flipping the switch on its head a little bit and thinking of it in the other way. Do you have any thoughts if there is some like larger AI transhumanist force out there that is seeking to kind of infuse or imbue its forces on humanity? Wow. (laughs) I think there's a lot in there that I'd love to think about because I think on the one hand, a lot of our technology today, because it lacks any sense of awareness about our gestures, our emotional context, who we are as people and where we are in our life, it falls really flat, right? So if you're interacting with, say, a chatbot, it gets boring pretty fast. I mean, it's kind of amusing to try to like trip it up or make fun of it. That's sort of a human impulse that we all have, especially kids love to do that it becomes unsatisfying after a while. And I think we're seeing it actually now come out in other areas besides just, say, communication with bots, like thinking about how reliant we are right now in this time of a global pandemic on Zoom and how people are feeling like, well, there's even this term Zoom gloom or Zoom fatigue. Because you're seeing somebody, but you are still not there with them. You're seeing yourself as you're communicating, although you can turn that off. And (laughs) it's just kind of this strange way of communicating that does not have a lot of the characteristics of our face-to-face real interaction, which is being able to pick up on small gestures, on side conversations, on tone of voice, on face. Part of it's because we're performing and part of it is because the technology just doesn't factor in those issues. So on the one hand, I feel like, well, our technology could be much more attuned to our emotional life, to our gestures, to this unspoken context. It's not very good right now. The technology that does that, that sometimes called effective computing or emotion AI, it can only pick up on really rudimentary things. I always tell people it's kind of like a toddler. Like it only knows a few emotions and you have to be really extreme in how you express them for the machine to pick up on it. So if you want a machine to read anger, you have to be really making an angry face and knitting your brows and doing it in a very kind of almost a caricature of how somebody might be angry for the machine to pick up on it. Now, that's not where we want to be in the future. If we want machines to have some recognition of who we are and how we relate. So I don't know. I think that's important. I think we're a long way off from getting there. As far as humans merging with machines, I don't know. I think transhuman is always framed in this weird way where it's like a strange guy in a trailer putting a magnet in his hand or something like that. (laughs) And it's sort of like, oh, that doesn't sound too good. But I think Mm -hmm. we're already sort of merged with technology in all kinds of ways that see, I mean, all technology changes us We design technology and it designs us in turn. And that's not just computer technology or emotion AI. It's older technologies. Like, for instance, when trains were first introduced in the 19th century, it really changed how people thought of space and how they thought of themselves in the world and how they 
maybe thought about creativity even and kind of that sense of an open road before you are traveling faster than you would on foot. Those are things that we're not merged with the technology. We're not going to become like attached. Nobody in the, not very many people anyway, in the 19th century thought they would like want to attach a train to their body or anything like that. But instead, it shaped consciousness in certain ways. And so when I think of transhumanism, I think, well, if we think about it like that, that's probably not too far off. And that means that we need to take great care when we design technologies to be gentle with ourselves and be empathetic with other people and to try to think not just about, oh, how cool this would be or how profitable this would be, but what it means to ourselves as individuals and, and our society and our culture. Totally. Yeah. It reminds me of something that Douglas Rushkoff said on episode 17 of my podcast. He says, people who think in question are dangerous to the status quo. But right now, the status quo is dangerous to humanity. I find that quote pretty invigorating right now because with the technology in our faces every day or our use of technology increasing every day, it's almost like we don't know. We have less of a sense of what is the status quo, especially as we are in this global pandemic. We only have technology to reflect with and to contemplate with and to all these Zoom calls, we are experiencing Zoom gloom, as you say. So it's like the only hope that we have for connecting with people is through technology. And you're not really sure what echo chamber you're in or what filter bubble you're in until you kind of step away from the technology. And then when you step away from the technology, you're very lonely. It's like, oh, I need to immediate feeling we have is like, okay, like, can we exist? Is this existence real without documenting it? And, you know, like the millennials, like the younger generations, like it didn't happen unless they document it. So to go kind of full tangent here, it's like, how do we know what filter bubble we are in when we're using technology? And, and how do we question the status quo if we don't even have a sense where we are in the realms of this greater sphere of the technological era of our humanity? Yeah, that's such an important question. And I guess the immediate response could be, well, we never know and we're always in bubbles, even without technology. I guess I'm more optimistic than that. I think that technology can also be created and used to build awareness of ourselves and to make us more cognizant of others and what's happening in ourselves and in the world. So I, I think it kind of goes both ways. But yeah, I don't think there's a clear divide anymore. Whereas I think, you know, maybe five years ago, people were still talking about like, well, I'm going to go offline or I'm going to detox and not be connected. And I think that's becoming more and more difficult. We're not able to do that. I mean, especially now, because that's our tenuous connection to the world and to everybody else. But I think in general, that's probably going to continue where we have a lot of our life is mediated by technology. And so it's even more important to create technologies that can help us be aware of, I don't know, the limitations of the technology itself and our own selves and how we're operating in that world. I mean, I do wonder, though, if after people start getting out and about and things start opening up, if there will just be kind of a rejection of technology for a while and an embracing of real life. 
I'd like to think about that, but I kind of mm. think that it won't happen. <laughs> wow. What a quaint. It's the same time. It's almost like futuristic, but then it just brings us right back to tribal times back in the day. It feels so good when you say that out loud. <laughs> <laughs> As we're using technology right now, it has this feeling of kind of quaintness and like, oh, like we're going back to the future back in time, yet we're moving into the future. It's almost like time is almost becoming nonlinear. does have that feeling, doesn't it? Because I think we're rediscovering in this time things that really matter to us, like the people who are close to us and our families and cultivating a self that isn't all about work. These are all important things that we're kind of, maybe we knew were there, but we're rediscovering in this time. And I can't help but think those are positives. And so I'd love to sort of take that forward and say, okay, how can we take this recognition that we now have and make something really, really great out of it? Hopefully we'll see some of that because I'm sure I'm not the only one thinking this. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I'm Googling every day, how do I live on a farm away off the grid? <laughs> the irony, right? <laughs> It's really the ultimate paradox. I mean, in your TEDx talk, you say, in your TEDx talk, How to Live Happily in the Digital Age, you mentioned that you got into technology because you believe it would change the world. And like you, I feel similarly to technology. I really love that it allows me to talk with people like you and have all these amazing connections with people that I would normally not be able to meet. But it does also bring up the paradox that we do need to, and you alluded to, detoxing. It's like the paradox of wanting the technology in our pockets, but then we also download apps to get off the other apps. So even a simple walk through the woods is haunted by this world in our pockets. So this idea that we can just take a detox and get away from it, is that real? Is that a reality that we can hope for? Or the cycle of binging and fasting, is that going to make us better? Or is there some happy medium in the in-between? Yeah, I'd like to think that we have to find some kind of balance because I don't think there is an off. I said in the talk, like, even as you're walking through the woods, you'll see an angle and be like, oh, yes, I really should take a picture of this and share it with my friends. Or, oh, wouldn't this look great with the gingham filter <laughs> and I'll post it on Instagram. We're always thinking about how our reality is situated in this kind of mediated world. And it frames our sense of reality. So I don't think there's a way to really easily pull them apart anymore, even for the most offline people who aren't on, say, social media. You're still using technology in all kinds of ways that is shaping how you think about yourself and how you interact with the world. So I think it's really interesting right now because we're all at home. And we have all this pressure to be on with everyone else, on Zoom, on calls, on chat, that the digital detox is almost becoming this new, like, I don't know, little white lie or an excuse we use to get out of things. I know I found myself doing it. It's like, oh, yeah, I can't be on that Zoom call right now because I need to detox a little bit. And there's a germ of truth in it. But even though I know, like, <laughs> yeah, I'm not really detoxing. And yeah, now I'm kind of using that as an excuse to get off. And I think that's just really interesting because we're in this extreme state where we have to be like, it's exhausting almost like we have to be online all the time and it feels very performative. And I think where we find the balance is when we don't have to be performing online, where we can have something that's more authentic, that feels natural. 
And that's a really tricky balance to create. It is really tricky balance, especially because a lot of the times we are having to perform. It's like if we show up on these Zoom calls, we have to show that we're happy. A lot of us don't have these emotions that are shareworthy. So it also brings into question, like, how do we share emotions that other people that the collective may not appreciate or like or want to go deep into? A lot of our culture doesn't appreciate anything that comes across as maybe sad or fearful or actually the opposite. It actually preys on people who are fearful. So what are these like main emotions that the technology that we use every day picks up on and how is it integrated into our present today? Yeah, well, I think what we see is emotions that are really strong, that are really intense tend to have more force online. So they spread, they get more reactions, positive and negative. And it almost doesn't matter what the reactions are to amplify that emotion. And this is probably why we feel like we need to detox or we feel like we need to get offline is because the emotions that surface to the top are really intense and really strong. And I We're not meant, at least we haven't been throughout our human history, to have these intense, strong emotions all the time. That's exhausting. That's something that takes away from other things that we can be doing and paying our attention to. So I'm not purely evolutionist when it comes to emotion. I mean, the evolutionary folks would say, well, You see a bear and you're afraid and you run. And that's the usefulness of emotion is that it it gives you that. And of course, the social constructivists would say, well, yes, but fear means a different thing to each person and each culture. And it's very complicated. I'm a little bit of both. But I think in our online world, we see that these emotions, if you're thinking about it in an evolutionary way, that were so strong that were meant to sort of signal to us to get out of there or run away, <laughs> the most dominant emotions sometimes, and that we're constantly being confronted with that and having to deal with that leaves us with this kind of, I don't know, rage hangover sometimes when you get off Twitter where you're just like, ah. I can't do this anymore. And so I think that's something that's really difficult to acknowledge and to accept, but that's definitely happening. And I think even our positive emotions, when they're mediated, tend to be pretty extreme too. I think real life, sometimes it's just cool to be mellow and chill out and feel relaxed. And that's not something that you experience a lot online. Usually it's extremely uplifting or it's awe, it's wonder. It's this mm-hmm. kind of really intense emotion that's mediated through our social channels. And that's kind of skewing our emotional development in a way too. So I'd love to see a way where when I say, oh, we could be more authentic with our emotional selves online, it sounds a little squishy, but I I think I'd love to see where we could accept all of these emotions, not just the intense ones and not just the most positive or the most negative. Because I mean, that's almost a misnomer anyway, because a lot of emotions we think of as as negative are useful in various ways, right? Like anxiety, that focuses our attention. 
it's not always bad. I mean, it's bad to be anxious all of the time and feel powerless, but anxiety can also attune you to issues that you need to pay attention to. And there's lots of emotions where we might think of them at first as like, oh, that's a negative emotion. I don't really want to feel that. It's actually a helpful emotion that frames how we understand something or drives us to a positive action. And so I think right now, what happens in our online world feels inauthentic or exhausting because it's extreme. It doesn't have that nuance yet that the rest of our lives have. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. It does feel really extreme. And I talked about this with one of my other guests on this podcast in episode 37, Dr. Loretta Bruning, on how to reprogram your brain. And you mentioned something along the lines of like happiness we don't necessarily always have to be happy. And it's really interesting because happiness does not equal serving others. So when we're happy, we might not necessarily be wanting to be happy for the pleasure or benefit of others. It's like, you know, we really have to look at ourselves and our emotions and build awareness so that we can be more cognizant of kind of how we are being programmed. It's We can either program ourselves or let technology program us, I think is the message here. So we can use the technology to quantify ourselves. There's this term out there, quantify yourself, and you really kind of keep track of the emotions and all of the data that you bring into your day through your emotions and how that is serving you and how it's serving others. And then kind of using that as a stepping stone to getting to where you want to be in the world instead of kind of letting your emotions run you all the time. So it's that delicate dance that we're all doing with how do we use our emotions to our advantage, but feel our emotions, but not let it take over too much. It's this constant day-to-day ever-changing experience that I think many of us are dealing with today because we don't want to be too much in our heads because then we're not feeling and we don't want to numb out, but then we don't want to feel too much. So it's just this never-ending cycle that we hope will only end once this pandemic reaches some type of conclusion. But at the same time, it's like no one really knows what's going to happen. And the theme of this whole podcast season is uncertainty. Absolutely. Well, and I think you, our impulse there is to say, okay, yeah, technology, that's just that's complicating everything. <laughs> let's just push that away. Let's detox. Let's get it out of the picture. And we can't do it. And then that's the frustrating part of it. Yeah, it's kind of frustrating. It definitely is because we're so like technology is just so imbued in our culture and in our society today that it's really a struggle to get away from it, which brings me to another fascinating topic that I can't wait to hear your perspective on, the topic of singularity. The singularity is a hypothetical point in time at which technological growth becomes uncontrollable and irreversible, resulting in unforeseeable changes to human civilization. And I know you're all about like positivity and stuff. So I want to continue going in the positive direction, but we need to talk about this stuff because it's real. It's happening. And some people are saying that the singularity is accelerated due to a quantum computer that came online. Do you know anything about this or do you know of any accelerated evolution that's happening to our singularity based on where we're at today in history? Yeah, I'm very skeptical of that. Because of the small, smaller space that I inhabit, which is thinking about artificial intelligence and how it relates to emotion. And I think about when I first really became interested in it and started trying it out and looking at that space five years ago, I thought, wow, this is going to be huge. This is going to change everything. It's going to happen really fast. And here we are five years later. And it hasn't progressed that much at all. 
And part of that is wariness of machines having access to something really personal and private, like our emotions. But a big part of that is the technology is just not there. It's based on one model of emotion. It detects only a very few signals of emotion that we give off through our facial expressions or our voice or our gestures. It's only a tiny, tiny sliver of what humanity is or could be. So the idea that a singularity is coming anytime soon seems, I don't know, a little, a little bit, well, talking about uncertainty, that's definitely uncertain, but it doesn't seem very <laughs> realistic to me either. I don't know. But that said, I don't think it's something we should then say, well, it's a long ways off, so let's dismiss it. I think we need to think about, well, what do we want that to mean? how do we want to make that shift? We know that the world that we create, and whether that's through technology or even just other objects in our life that we've designed, and whether mass produced or not, they change who we are, they change how we relate to each other, they change how we see the world. We put stuff in the world that changes things. <laughs> and we need to become really conscious of that. And I think the same goes for a singularity. The idea I think that's frightening about it is that it's going to happen really fast and spin out of control, and it's going to take away what's essentially human and leave us feeling like we're unnecessary. We don't belong anymore. And I think that's an anxiety that we have that could focus us and get us to really think about, well, what is it that we care the most about? What is it that as humans we want to augment or preserve and who gets to be a part of that conversation? How do we frame that going forward? I think those are all really important questions that the concept of a singularity can help us think through as long as we're not too fearful that it's going to happen right away and all at once. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. I think what we focus on expands and if we focus on the fear around the technology, we're going to get that. We're going to get the Terminator <laughs> overnight. Yeah. And, you know, all those crazy science fiction movies are going to happen. But I think maybe if we focus on the benefits of it, like some of the one of the, my favorite science fiction movies, uh, Her, because it really just invokes this feeling of like it's calm. Technology induces a state of calm and it can if you see it that way. So it really just depends on what science fiction movie you want to tune into and how you want to see our future today. And really, it's as trippy and as out there as that, really, because life is becoming the reality TV in every moment. So it's like, what channel do we want to tune into? <laughs> it feels like that sometimes. And I'm right there with you. I mean, I think we don't have enough speculative fiction or science fiction that imagines a positive future, one that we might actually want, instead of imagining just all the ways that it could go wrong. It's good to think about the ways it could go wrong, for sure. I mean, we need to have some awareness of that. Black Mirror is great for that, for taking a trend mm -hmm. that's happening right now and saying, well, what if this just changed a little bit and who adopted it or how it was used and how would that go wrong? That's instructive. But I think it's much harder to imagine, well, what is it that we do want? Where do we want to see things going? And that's why I think her as a movie resonated with a lot of people, because you look at the vision there, and it's not perfect by any means. 
but it examines all of these really complicated issues about human relationships and how we see ourselves and how we want to relate to machines and machine consciousness and did it in a way that didn't feel like sterile and cold and forbidding mm -hmm. like a lot of dystopian visions do. It felt warm and inviting and like technology had a place that wasn't subsuming everything. And I think that's a vision that's a lot more hopeful and appealing. I agree. What are some other movies or books that are hopeful and more optimistic that listeners can tune into or read that you recommend? Well, I think as far as, well, if we're talking about science fiction. I really enjoy, and it's kind of just funny, Frank and Robot, which is about a friendship between an older man and a robot, and they engage in some crimes together. And it's kind of <laughs> lighthearted. So that's on the fun side of things. But I do find myself, I tend not to read science fiction or that kind of stuff. I tend to read more just good fiction, because I think that is what makes us understand other people and have empathy and, I don't know, get, get kind of a larger sense of the world. So I really go back to a lot of the classics. And right now I'm finding myself craving reading more and more in a way that I hadn't been for a while. So I'm going back to things like Proust and Virginia Woolf and more mm -hmm. modern writers like Zadie Smith and just embracing fiction again. And looking at that as a way in to think about human psyche and our emotional lives. Amen. Yeah. And shout out to all those female authors and writers out there. <laughs> Virginia Woolf, I'm reading her as well. So good. This time is calling for more solitude, more contemplation, more reflection, which I hope that many of the people that are out there programming the technology are doing as well, just so that we can take a more contemplative approach to it all. <laughs> so. Pamela, thank you so much for joining me. Where can listeners go to find you online and learn more about your work in the world? Yeah, I think the best place to go is I have a personal site, Pamela.is, or you can follow me on Twitter at Pam in the Lab. I'd love to hear from listeners and discuss further. And thanks so much for having me on the show. It was wonderful. You made it to the end of this podcast. This means the world to me. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Feel free to hop on over to my podcast website, artofhumanity.io, for show notes or past interviews. You can also message me on social media. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My name is Jessica Ann, and my handle is beingishuman. That's B-E-I-N-G-I-S-H-U-M-A-N. I'd love to hear from you and learn more about what you've enjoyed from this episode. If you really love this podcast, I'd highly appreciate it if you went on Apple Podcasts right now and left a review. It helps way more than you know. You can also share this episode with two of your friends who you think would enjoy it. Let's get the Art of Humanity movement going. Thank you for listening. Until the next episode, evolve your business with the Art of Humanity. Listen, explore, evolve.